Please be seated. In three years, we will observe the 500th anniversary of the event we celebrate today on Reformation Sunday. It's already been mentioned a couple times. This is the time in the calendar of the church will be set aside to remember these events. And when Martin Luther nailed his 95 propositions on the Wittenberg church door, it was not his intent to start a whole family of churches that would be called Protestant or Lutheran or Reform. He was simply one in a long line of reformers in the history of the church who kept alive the true gospel. However, his actions on October 31st, 1517 were a catalyst for recapturing the simple gospel from centuries of added tradition and the teachings of men. I can think of no better way to honor those who have gone before us and some who have even sacrificed to the point of a martyr's death for the gospel than to reflect on the nature of the remarkable redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. Our text for today will be Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. But before we hear God's word, let us pray. Almighty God, grant us your spirit that we may rightly understand and truly obey your word of truth. Open our hearts that we may love you, love what you command and desire what you promise. Set us free from private distractions that we may hear and from selfish pride that we may receive the promise of your grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something a little out of the ordinary. We've done it a couple times here at the church, but I would like you to stand as we read our scriptures today from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to, un to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Although the uh, term Trinity is not found in the scriptures, the concept is clearly present there. The doctrine of the triune nature of God, while not fully explaining his mysterious character, does set boundaries on our understanding of God beyond which we may not go. On the one hand, the scriptures clearly portray the essential unity of God. 
The ancient confession of Israel given in Deuteronomy 6 reminds us that the Lord our God is one. On the other hand, the scriptures also teach that the Godhead consists of three distinguishable persons equal in divinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are not the same God appearing in different modes, nor are these three separate beings. The scriptures also teach that the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are united in securing the blessings of our salvation. Each has a distinct role. The Father initiates creation and redemption. The Son redeems his creation. And the Spirit applies redemption to the believer. This is, the, this is Paul's focus in our text this morning. What Paul has to say to the Ephesian church and to us is not simply a theological exercise, not just learning some interesting doctrinal tidbits that we can file away in the back of our minds somewhere or in the pages of a notebook. These truths go to the heart of the remarkable redemption that God has provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. They enable us to understand what God has done and how it shapes what we think and what we do. They establish the foundation of our new identity in Christ. Paul begins in verse 3 and he goes through to verse 6 by blessing God for bestowing on his people every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he enumerates these blessings as they are accomplished by the Father, by the Son, and the Spirit for our salvation. First, we are blessed because we are chosen by the Father. God the Father chose us in Christ before the world's foundation. Imagine that. Our present experience of the blessings of God bestowed by his grace was worked out among the members of the Trinity in eternity before the creation of the world. It does not depend on human deeds or merits, but God's grace, will, and pleasure. He chose us before we could choose for ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I go through times of darkness in my life, times of trial, or recognizing my own sin, that truth that we sometimes just gloss over in our reading of it, that, that the Lord chose us before the foundation of the world to be his is a comfort and an encouragement to me. That as we sang in the song, in Christ alone, no scheme of hell, no the hand of man could pluck us from the hand of God. We are his. He has set his mark on us long before we ever existed. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see some of the same language here as Ephesians. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The purpose of his choosing is that we might be holy, set apart, to reflect his purity in our lives, that we might be blameless, that is, made righteous in Christ, not in our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ in us. And because the church is made up of all those chosen by God and called out to be his people, the church also doesn't originate in the will of man. It's not just an idea that someone came up with. It is a part of the plan of God. The subject of God's predestining work is clearly taught in this text and several others Yet it remains difficult for many because they misunderstand God's purpose for revealing it to us. 
German reformer Johannes Brentz, not one of the most well-known of the reformers, but one nonetheless of the German church, captured this well when he wrote the following. He said, predestination frightens many worldly people so much so that they are bold enough to ask their Lord and Creator, why did you make me like this? But their complaints about predestination are completely silenced by this verse. It is a huge comfort to spiritual people because when they are in trouble, they can rest assured and even boast in the face of Satan because they have been chosen by God from eternity. The Lord cared about you before the world was made, before you existed. So, much, so how much more will he care about you now that the world has been created and you have appeared in it? The concept of God's election is not meant to be a threat to those who deny Christ. It certainly has implications there. But rather, it's to be a source of encouragement to those who love him and struggle with their own weakness. All that God does, he ultimately does to glorify himself. God did not leave all humanity in the just reward of their sin. He certainly could have. None of us can stand on our merit to, to deserve our own merits, to deserve the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've sung that in several of the songs this morning. It's in the scriptures we've read. But God chose some so that the glory of his grace might be praised. Now, not only we were chosen, we were also predestined in love to be adopted as God's sons and daughters through Christ. The emphasis here is on the marvelous display of God's love in adopting us. We were adopted, we were received into the family of God, not because of anything we are or we have done, nor are we adopted because of anything we will be or do. And I have four daughters. They were born into my family. They had no choice about the matter. But some of you, uh, and some of you either have been or maybe have adopted yourselves, you chose to adopt a child or were adopted yourself not based on anything that was existed in you, just because of the love of the person who adopted you. It's the same with the Lord. Adoption is a constituted, not, not a natural relationship. It's an act of grace. In fact, left to our own free will, we, we would have no desire to choose God. We have been adopted out of the Father's pure love. And under Roman law, the adopted son enjoyed all the status and privileges of a real son. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. All the knowledge, all the wisdom, all the power of Christ, our older brother, is ours to share. All the spiritual blessings of heaven are ours. That's how Paul starts out. All of those blessings in heaven are ours in him, in the present and we're guaranteed an inheritance in the future. Paul concludes this section on the Father's work and salvation by placing it in the proper context. He reminds us that all this was done by God's good pleasure to bring glory to him and to highlight his merciful dealings with us. Paul then goes on to, in, in, uh, and reminds us in, in 7 through 12 that those who are chosen and adopted by the Father also in time redeemed by the Son. The imagery of redemption focuses on the release from slavery or the penalty of death and then the price that was paid to effect that freedom. 
Before we became sons and daughters of God, we were sold into slavery to sin. We might not have recognized it. We certainly didn't until God worked in our hearts. But nonetheless, we were sold into slavery to sin. And the price paid for our redemption was high. It was, in fact, nothing less than the blood of Christ poured out through his sacrificial death on the cross. And through this redemption, we receive forgiveness of our sins. The penalty and guilt of our sins are canceled. It's wiped away. And apart from Christ, there is no redemption. Now, while redemption was purchased in the past at Christ's death on the cross so that we might possess its benefits in the present, it also has a future aspect to it. Paul reminds us that the time will come when God the Father will bring everything in heaven and earth under the headship of Christ. There is a future redemption, a final deliverance of all things. We live in a time that I think Benison, one of his sermons recently talked about, it's the time, or maybe it was Camper, but about the now and the not yet. It hasn't quite happened yet. I mean, that's why there are times when we look at things and we go, why does God let this happen? Or why isn't this, has this come about yet? Well, in the timing of God, he will bring all things to pass and fruition in Christ. There will be a final deliverance of all things, a final setting right of all that's wrong with this fallen creation. Through Christ, we're a part of reconciliation on a cosmic level that goes way beyond anything that we can comprehend. In between the services, I was talking with several of the folks from the early service about the sermon. And, and part of a problem, I said, you know, part of the problem is that we try to comprehend God who is just totally incomprehensible. And I'm reminded that sometimes on I sometimes in the evenings I'll go upstairs the second floor of my house, I'll pray, spend some time in prayer. And in, in there's a cathedral kind of window in that in that up, upper room, and through it I can see the stars in the sky. And out where I live in the next side of Virginia, this, this, you can see the stars very clearly when the lights are not on because it was way out in the country. And I am reminded that it's that the God who created all that and put it into, into creation and emotion that I'm trying to comprehend when I'm on my knees in prayer. I just simply cannot as much as I'd like to try. All I have is what he's revealed to, him, uh, to us about himself. And that surely is enough for all that we need to be redeemed, but not enough for us to understand everything that God is up to. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world, and when the time is right, he will put into effect the consummation of his eternal and comprehensive plan of redemption. We are all part of that plan. We are all a part of that stream of God's work in his creation. And however long it takes before the Lord comes, if he tarries, so will all those in the future, our children and their children's children, who, are, who proclaim Jesus Christ and live to his glory. But at the end of the age, everything will be summed up in Christ and the universe restored to its God-designed harmony. Man will no longer be at odds with himself or with others, with God or with creation. All things will be restored. All things will be reconciled in Christ. So what does that really mean? I mean, that sounds like, you know, you read Ephesians and you, it's easy to read the passage and just kind of gloss right over all the, the depth that's there and, uh, or to see here are these kinds of things. Say, well, that's all nice theological talk, but what does it really mean? Well, Paul Tripp says we don't live our lives on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to the interpretation of those facts. There was a time in my life when I was not really a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I could have told you every part of the gospel. 
I could have told you every component. I could have answered a lot of your theological questions for you. But I didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally. I had the bare facts, but I wasn't living my life according to the interpretation of those facts. What it meant, what the gospel means personally to each one of us as God calls us to himself. Redemption is a recovering and restoring of the original. In Christ, you don't have to be bound by the facts of your experiences, of your past. You are set free. Restored to your original purpose. To reflect the image of God in your worship, in your, which not in, doesn't in, just limit it to what you do here on Sunday morning, but worship in every aspect of your life whenever you, as you go out from this place and live a redeemed life in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, those who are chosen and adopted by the Father, redeemed and restored by the Son, Paul reminds us in the last two verses of this text, will also be sealed and assured in Christ by the Spirit. At at the moment a person believes in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals them. A seal can be a mark of ownership or an authentication affixed to a document to certify its genuineness. When I lived in Europe, I, uh, I had a Catholic priest who worked for me. I was an army chaplain. And uh, he kind of was, he was Polish, and he was a friend of the Pope then, Pope John Paul II. So he could get just about anything done. And one at the time, he knew I was going to Rome, so he decided, hey, Ken, I can't get you to see the Pope because he's gone this week. But he said, but I can get you a pass to the Vatican Gardens. So we met, he said, you've got to meet this Polish nun who, speaks, who spoke no English, by the way, at this little gate at the side of the Vatican Gardens, and she kind of met us there at the appropriate time, and she led us in, and she kind of gave us a little bit of a tour of the gardens, which are really an amazing place. And at a certain time, she kind of motioned to us, and we kind of figured out what she was trying to say is that she had to leave, but, she, but we didn't have to. We could stay in the gardens as long as we chose to stay there. And so she gave us a little piece of paper um, that... You know, a little piece of paper that had a stamp on it. Now, in Italy, everything that has a stamp is official. I don't care what it is. Um, and uh, I was just talking to, to uh, Greg about how that used to work. And he'd go to the post office to pay his light bill and all that kind of stuff. He had to pay in cash. He said every time that you put a bill out, they would like go, like a stamp, you know. And he said they looked, they were like, with authority, you know. That stamp goes on there. It, it wasn't official, so the stamp goes on. And so the same thing was true. I had a little pass, and when I, we were out in the gardens, you know, the, the papal guards would come, and most of them at that were, you know, plain clothes suits with their little earpieces in their ears, and they would come up to us, you know, wondering what the, you guys are doing in the garden. There are about six of us there, our family, and I would just show them the little pass, had the stamp on it, right? And they would just kind of salute and, you know, let us send us on our way. So we had the stamp. By giving believers a spirit, God stamps them as his own possession and certifies the genuineness of their faith. There can be no confusion concerning the identity of God's people. Because of the Spirit's stamp on us, we are marked as his people. If you don't have the Spirit of God in your life, if you haven't been stamped with the Spirit of God, then you're not one of his. The Spirit of God applies or makes effective every aspect of salvation to the, uh, to the individual Christian. God the Father foreordained it, planned it. Jesus Christ the Son came and redeemed us by his sacrifice on the cross, but it's the Holy Spirit that God sends into our hearts, into our lives, to affect those blessings that Paul talked about in our lives through Christ. But not only are believers sealed by the Holy Spirit, they are also assured by the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is a deposit, a down payment on the future completion of our salvation. And when you put in a bid for a home, you're often asked to put down some earnest money, right? All of you have done this before, you know what I mean. You have to put down earnest money, a check, basically, to show your commitment to follow through on the deal. If you decide for, uh, because, uh, not to follow through on the deal, then earnest money belongs to the people who own the house. The Spirit is the first installment of the Christian's inheritance in God's kingdom. It is, if you will, earnest money, down payment. Redemption is already ours through the sacrificial death of Christ. But one aspect of our redemption remains in the future. When God's final trumpet sounds, he will fully redeem his pledge. And he will pour out the fullness of his blessings, including the redemption of our physical bodies. Until that day, the Spirit of God is given to us as an assurance that all the promises of God will be fulfilled in us. And promise refers to the promises made all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, but in particular to Abraham and the covenant that was made with, with Abraham. I think it may be used this illustration in Sunday school here before. There's a strange um, vision that takes place or a strange event that takes place in Genesis 15 where God tells Abraham to take some animals and cut them in half and lay them out. Like if I were to lay them out across this, down this aisle, the halves across from each other. And then he asks then he, asks, he puts Abraham in a trance, and then he, God, in, a, in a, a, a flaming torch, a smoking pot, kind of a vision of God, goes back and forth between the pieces. Now, what you don't know, if you don't know anything about the ancient practices of covenant making in the Old Testament, is the, the practice was designed to make, a, it's like a contract. You know, we, we, we kind of make our contracts a little neater than cutting animals in half and putting on this, you know, we just have sign and ink that we're going to do something and have it notarized or whatever. God was making a covenant with Abraham. He basically said, if one of the parties violates this covenant, then may they be like these animals. May their lives be forfeit. But you notice Abraham doesn't walk through. God walks through on his behalf and on Abraham's behalf. Foreshadowing the fact that even though God at the time had given them his, his path to understanding uh, who he is and, and pointed coming to the coming of the Messiah that, and all the stipulations that, that went with that covenant that Abraham and his descendants would not be able to keep it. Just like we're not able to keep it on our own. And that God would ultimately have to keep both halves of that covenant. And he did that in Ephesians chapter 1 and through 3 through 14 as we've read. He did that for the foundation of the world. He did that for us. He took upon himself and for his people, upon himself for his people, their failure to keep the promises which were fulfilled in Christ's death. Now, all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are united in securing the blessings of our salvation. That's what this text is all about. It's one actually giant run-on sentence. If you read it in the original language from 3 through 14, it's just one giant run-on sentence. It's just one thing after another after another that explains to us how the, all members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in securing this blessing of salvation for us. The Father chooses and adopts us, not because of anything that we've done, and before the foundation of the world, he did this. Which goes to show it's not about us. It's not about our abilities or merits or anything that God could see in us. 
totally by his grace and his purpose. I don't understand all the reasons why God chose me. I don't really, I just, I just don't know. I mean, if I were to look at it, I wouldn't choose me. But, uh, but God, in, in, his, in the mystery of who he is, has called many of you here to himself. And then the Son redeems and restores us. He enacts what the Father has, has planned and has decreed. And he came to take upon himself on the cross our sins and the sins of the world. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day as a vindication that what he did and accomplished was effective. And then the Spirit takes those blessings that have been secured for us through the sacrificial death of Christ and makes them real to our hearts. What a remarkable salvation God has worked on our behalf. Sometimes when I come to church on Sunday and I don't feel like I'm quite ready to worship, it's probably because I don't really understand the depths of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I just take it on the surface. I can tell you what it is. I can you know, tell you the words. I can tell you, well, this is what he did. But I don't, it doesn't penetrate in my heart to the depth that it needs to penetrate it. Because if I truly understood the remarkable salvation that God has given to me, it would surely drop me to my knees in worship of him. Would it not? It is this marvelous salvation that we are here to celebrate this morning and every Lord's Day and every time we gather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not experienced the joy and wonder of God's great redemptive plan and promise for you, worked out on your behalf, do not neglect through unbelief the legacy that God has purchased for you at such great cost. Open your heart to the work of his spirit and let Christ work his redemption within you. Don't let anything keep you from that. I think sometimes, for me at least, it was early on. It was maybe a little bit of pride. You know, I mean, I was in the church. I went to church. I did all those things. God, it could have easily been a sense, well, I don't need to do that because I haven't, you know, I know all that stuff. Yeah. But God in his grace didn't let that be a hindrance to me. And I knew that I had to come to, to know him in a personal way. Open your heart to the work of his spirit. Let Christ work his redemption within you. Talk to someone here if, you're, if, you, if you don't know what that means and it's still, you're seeking that out. God wants to meet you here. On the other hand, if you've already come to personal faith in Christ, then let your mind and heart rejoice more fully, more fully in the blessings of salvation so graciously given to you before the foundations of the world were laid. I mean, I'm going to say that one more time because I just think it doesn't grab us enough that your heart rejoice more fully in the blessings of salvation so graciously given to you before the foundation of the world was laid. You have a new identity, a new story. You were created and chosen by God the Father for a purpose. You were redeemed, ransomed, and forgiven, set free from your old story, whatever that old story might have been or continues to be. And you're set free from the idols that dominate that story. Oh, no, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have them pop up their ugly heads every once in a while. They do in my life. They do in all of us. But we don't have to listen to them anymore. We don't have to worship them anymore. 
We've been set free from them. And you've been sealed by the Spirit. God will finish what he started in you. And not only that, he's given you a down payment to secure that promise. Sometimes when I talk to people about the gospel, I kind of just try to visualize it for them. It's, I, I try to relate it into, in terms of a story because I really believe that the scriptures is a grand story or narrative of the redemptive plan and purpose of God that we see from the book of Genesis chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the final chapter in verse of Revelation. And it doesn't even end there because everything in between Acts and Revelation, we're part of. We're still part of that grand redemptive story that God is working out until the time he brings all things together under Christ. We don't think of ourselves that way, but it's true. But there's a storyline. We have a storyline. For the longest time, my storyline was like over here, you know, this way, going that direction. And it was my story because I was in control of that story. It was my destiny. You know, it's kind of the typical American, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged individualism story. You know, you can do it. You can go for the gold, you know. But there's another storyline that's there, and it's the storyline of God and what he's been doing since before the foundation of the world. And at some point, because of God's mercy and grace, my storyline and his storyline connected. And my storyline now became subsumed into his. And now I'm part of the uh, the grand storyline of God. And that's what I encourage non-believers to recognize and for believers to live by. You have a new identity in Christ. You have been set free because of this remarkable salvation that God has given you and determined to give you before the foundations of the world. That's an awesome thought, I believe. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that At some point, when we were going our own way with our own storyline, you chose to help us understand that your storyline needed to intersect with ours, and our storyline would be subsumed under yours. And we thank you for that grace. We don't know why you poured it out in our hearts, but we know it had nothing to do with us and everything to do with you. If there's someone here this morning, Lord, that needs to know how to get their storyline and your storyline to match, I pray, Lord, you would touch their hearts through the power of your spirit. And don't let them rest until they talk to someone about it. And for those of us, Lord, who know you, help us to live out our new identity in Christ. Help us to to understand the depths of this story of redemption that Paul lays out for us here in these 11 verses or so of Ephesians. Help us to grasp that new identity, that we are free from our old story and the idols that we worship in that story and now have been set free to be more like Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that when we leave here in a few minutes, that we be more like your son Jesus than when we came in this morning. And that every day that would be uh, the thing that we would seek, to be more like your son Jesus every day and when we started. Thank you for the great and remarkable redemption you've given us in Christ, the gospel that we celebrate every time we come into your presence and the great Redeemer who made it possible, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.